Oh, does it turn our cameras off, Scott? Yeah, so I don't have to look at you against the Las Vegas sky. Welcome back. It's episode 148 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. Coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where, for the safety of our students, we have reimposed the mandate that they don't ask Richard about Roman law. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key, and tireless advocate for bringing back town planning to the Olympics. That was actually a thing. Look it up. And I am joined, as always, by the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Gentlemen, welcome back. It's been a while. I feel unusually out of touch with you guys. Um, I don't know anything about what your summers have looked like. So can can I just start with this? Because every four years, I like to raise this and just stand back and, and watch the carnage when I get the answer. John, how did you enjoy the Olympics? They sucked. <laughs> it, I, actually, it was interesting. I did not realize how much the crowd made a difference in enjoying the Olympics. It was great because America won the most medals and won the most golds, as it has for years now. But I, I, found, I found the events kind of dull and boring, and so I didn't really watch it as much as I, I usually watch them a lot. I really enjoy them. Okay, you've actually softened a little bit, because the whole reason I asked this question is I remember a time not too long ago when you were inveighing against the very concept of the Olympics on principle. Oh, I don't actually like them as a as an, a thing. I actually saw. I I, I mean, I, I don't like all this kind of international cooperation and good feelings. No, I'm not for that. <laughs> but I thought, like, as sporting events, they're kind of enjoyable. But not this time. I mean, I think they were worse than you, even usual because of the lack of the audience. Richard, how are you? How's your summer been? My summer has been fine, thank you. Uh, I did not watch a single second of the Olympics. Uh, I anticipated what John said, uh, which was that without the crowd, it would be a kind of a giant pantomime. And it it didn't seem to me that one could get completely involved in that. I did read about it to some extent, um, and I thought that some of the backstories were rather interesting in the particular cases. Um, uh, But otherwise, I, I think really detachment was the sort of the dominant mode. And I've discovered that this is pretty much universal. Uh, it may well be that just the press of work both um, in the academic sphere and everywhere else has become sufficiently heavy. Uh, the other thing I find is that the only time it's really fun to watch a sporting event is to watch it with somebody who also wants to watch the sporting event so that you could kind of cheer each other on, argue and so forth. And uh, my children are away and my wife is not particularly interested in those things. So between the absence of a crowd and the absence of a companion, I never turn the TV on. Um, I regard myself as somewhat apologetic for that, but I'm not going to say that I'll change it because I gather it's too late. They're over now, right? But I I did notice that the United States came from behind to uh, nip the Chinese, and I suppose that's a good thing. I don't know if I'm thrilled about the fact that the United States won, but I'm certainly thrilled about the fact that the Chinese did not. And so under these particular circumstances, I will say uh, farewell and well done and um, wait till, well, I guess it's three years from now, and I hope 
hope that this whole thing um, gets back to more normal times. I do think that the COVID situation has been a kind of a general pall on all sorts of sensibilities, forcing us to live in greater isolation than ought to be the case, and that this actually does affect your willingness to engage in these kinds of activities. I regarded the Olympics as a kind of a Zoom event, and I have to do Zoom events, uh, but I don't think I want to sort of willingly inflict them upon myself. Um, and so, therefore, I didn't watch it. But Richard, I would have thought you would have liked America winning because it shows the triumph of private, decentralized sports versus command and control, communist slash East German slash Soviet style uh, training and organization. That's why I was glad that the others lost. I don't know how how it was decentralized. The American system is. We do get all sorts of squabbles coming out through the Olympic Committee. This has always been a long feature. Um, you don't remember when West Santee was booted out by Avery Bundage, but that was one of the great events of my youth. And it was is that always like from the, the War line. of 1812 or something? <laughs> no, no, no. It was, I think, from 1952. I mean, this was a man who was on the edge of breaking the four-minute mile, and he got himself tied up in, in something. So there's always been politics uh, in the ways in which these things are won. Uh, if you want to see how it really works, one of the great books I ever read, uh, I can't remember, a man named Brown, I think, wrote a book called The Boys in the Boat. And it was about the 1936 Washington University um, rowing team. And its uh, protagonist was a man named Joe Rance. It's absolutely a gripping story. And it ends up with the final. And the Germans and the Italians conspired to cheat the Americans out of a medal uh, by putting them in the wrong lane, giving them insufficient information about starting. And they managed to get themselves up to 46 strokes per minute um, and to beat out the Germans and the Italians. It's truly a remarkable uh, kind of story. You can't get those kinds of human drama stories, I think, when you're in isolation. That's always been the problem to me. And as a boy, John, I don't think you remember Bob Mathias. <laughs> that sounds like a no. <laughs> Tad, do you remember him, Troy? Uh, no, no, I do not remember. From the boyfriend, I think it was Modesto. He was 17 years old in 1948, and he won the decathlon and then repeated in 52. All right. No. It tells you, by the way, you notice the Olympics that I'm talking about. I was, was going to say, having, having covered vintage Olympics, but I will recommend to our listeners, however, if they have not had the chance, because I've seen a couple people circulated in the course of these games, go back and read about the marathon in the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, uh, most of which took place on a dirt road off the streets of St. Louis. It's pretty great. Um, we do have it's a lot not to a, get it's to. It's not a true marathon unless the guy died at the end. Uh, there, everything short of that happened. There was a guy who nearly died because he was doping for the race with arsenic. <laughs> that's a true part of a true part of what happened. So we've got a lot to get to. Um, let's start with this, Richard. You mentioned the sort of long shadow of of COVID. Uh, we had a pretty remarkable development recently, which is that the the CDC, dating back to the Trump administration, since much earlier in the pandemic has imposed this moratorium on evictions. The stated justification for which was, look, you've got a pandemic going on at the same time that we sort of had to shut the economy down. You can't throw people out of their homes because it's just going to lead to overcrowding and accelerate the spread of the virus. So it's one thing to make that case in 2020. This started back in September. It's quite another to make it in 2021 when we've got vaccines available for anyone who wants them. Nevertheless, the ban was supposed to run out on July 31st, and then the Biden administration announced that it was going to be extending it through October 3rd. Now, amazingly, this is despite the fact 
that the Supreme Court had already looked at this, and there was a majority on the court who felt that this was beyond the proper scope of the CDC's power. But it didn't get shut down at that moment because Justice Kavanaugh said, look, it's winding down anyway. It'd be disruptive for us to pull the plug here when it's about to end. But you'd have to go to Congress to get authority to do this any further, which in turn creates this bizarre spectacle when President Biden is announcing the extension. And he says, this is the quote, the bulk of the constitutional scholarship says that it's not likely to pass constitutional muster. Which points for candor, I suppose. So there are so many angles here, but Richard, actually, I want to start with the foundational one. So let's sort of bracket the administrative state question for a moment, the executive overreach question. Let's imagine an alternate history where we impose this exact same policy, but we did it through acts of Congress. It comes from the legislative branch. We are still at that point talking about the federal government imposing conditions on the use of an entire class of property all throughout the country that renders it essentially unproductive. Is that a power that the federal government unambiguously possesses? Well, you're asking somebody who spent a lot of time worrying about the uh, takings issue and uh, uh, the way in which this would be teed up is that on the one hand, what you do is you have the clear limitation on the ability to get somebody out of the premises. Is this a strong property right? Well, the answer today is not quite uh, because this is exactly the same problem that you have at the expiration of a lease and the rent control statute since 1921 have allowed the government to force the landlord to take a tenant back in after the expiration so long as he pays a rent that is set by the state, which is below the market value. And so uh, you're starting against a framework in which there's pretty weak protection of property rights in that particular area. All these rent control statutes, to my mind, are defective in so many ways that they should be struck down. And every time you try to do that, you get run into an absolute brick wall. It's quote-unquote a mere regulation. It is not a forced occupation of your premises by the guy who's walking on the floors inside your building. So there's the one side that's very rickety, the taking side. Then there is the justification side. And of course, this is a public health justification and so forth about the fact that people are going to leave and they're going to spread COVID. Um, I recommend there's a fine column that was written by my former student and friend Eugene Kantorovich uh, on Fox, in which he actually takes a peek at what the so-called science is in these cases. And it turns out what you do is you run a survey of a random group of individuals, some of whom say if they're going to be thrown out of their own home, they may have to go in with their relatives. There's no controlled study of any sort kind of description, which tells you whether or not these movements back and forth are going to eliminate COVID or create it. Um, it turns out there may well be dangers in keeping people in their their current premises. The landlords will not be able to keep the premises up. This may create a deterioration in the ventilation system. That, in turn, could create a higher level of COVID. Uh, there are all sorts of causation elements there. And what has happened, uh, notwithstanding Judge Kavanaugh, is that the CDC has relied on an extraordinary level of deference on the part of virtually everybody involved in this on the oversight side. So if they make a claim that it's related to health, they'll do it. Now, there's also a statutory claim uh, because the CDC certainly has the power to control various kinds of things, inspections, fumigations, and things like that sort. And they're allowed to do other activities. Uh, and this gets you back to Roman law, sorry, about the principle of justum generis. Is this uh, other activity stopping the um, evictions close enough to the traditional health kinds of matters uh, that it should be swept in? Uh, Judge Thackar wrote a very strong opinion in the Sixth Circuit saying this thing just really doesn't pass muster at all. It's 
it's an infringement on separation of powers and everything else. And the Biden administration, their attitude towards it is, oh, you did write that. You're a court. You may catch up with me. Uh, but I'm going to keep the moratorium in place, shovel out some more dough. And so the issue is now not just a question about the health justification. It's even after they've been judicially rejected, arguably on constitutional grounds, uh, that what you do is you see this thing starting to take place. And incidentally enough, Biden did it without congressional authorization. But if you put the Congress back into this situation and have justifications as shoddy as the ones that seem to have been used, I think there's a serious doubt under any sensible system of constitutional law. Uh, But if you're trying to think about reforms of American constitutional law, getting health and property and safety right is one of the top things on the list. John, to that point that Richard just made, I mean, what we're seeing the Biden administration do here, pretty much by its own admission, is essentially exploiting process. They know this is legally suspect, but they also know how long it takes these things to wind through the courts. So they figure, hey, if it gets enjoined, it gets enjoined. But even if that happens, we do a lot of good in the interim. And you've heard a lot of people, especially from the right, you know, complaining, what does the rule of law even mean if you can just take the position that I'm going to do this regardless of the legality because I know I can get away with it for a while before someone stops me? Is there a mechanism that could stop that kind of behavior? Or do we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that, you know, look, it's a second best world and you just got to be patient and, and let these things wind their way through the courts? Now, this is the biggest problem with what Uh, the Biden administration has done and it extends well beyond the merits or not of eviction during COVID, which I agree with Richard. The problem is the relationship between the executive and legislative branches, which is not just going to be here. It's going to be every other area where the Biden administration wants to start redistributing wealth without congressional permission. You're seeing it with student loans and you're, you know, why not extend it to car loans? Why not extend it to credit card debt? You could go on and on. But the problem is that uh, the as you as you as you mentioned, Roy, the Supreme Court uh, four justices think this was unconstitutional, and a fifth justice, Justice Kavanaugh, decided not to vote and strike it down earlier because he wanted to give the administration time to wrap up the program. And then what's the Biden administration do? It turns right around and extends the program again. It's a slap in the face of not just Justice Kavanaugh but of the Supreme Court. And as you say, Troy, then the Biden administration says, well, even though we don't think it's constitutional, it'll take weeks for this to get to the Supreme Court. And so it's at least worth doing for that period of time. So there are things that can be done um, to uh, challenge what the Biden administration has done. The case uh, is already right now in the D.C. in the D.C. District Court and other courts, I believe Uh, those courts. Uh, had the case already, they can basically issue an injunction by the end of the day today or by the end of the day tomorrow and just say, we don't see any difference between this moratorium and the last moratorium, which we held unconstitutional. And here's the other thing, Trent, this is, I'm sorry to get into uh, not Roman law, but uh, the technicalities of civil procedure. So Well, they're all we... from Roman origin anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> you knew that well, was Well, everything's coming. Roman origin now. So, all race so, adjudicated. You know, what's happened in the past is that the district judges, you know, the trial judges in our system, what they've been doing is they've been holding this eviction moratorium unconstitutional, and then they've stayed the effect of their judgments. In other words, they've let the moratorium continue in effect to give the government time to appeal ultimately to the Supreme Court. So 
After the judges have received this slap of disrespect from the Biden administration, all they have to do is say, I'm not going to stay the effect of my judgment. I'm going to enjoin this eviction moratorium and you can appeal you, the Biden administration. But while you're on appeal, I'm actually keeping in effect my ban on your order. And that would teach the Biden administration a lesson, lesson, and that would stop the moratorium now. It's actually unusual for a judge to do that, but I think it's justified in this case in the way the Biden administration has basically been told what they're doing is unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And they basically just said, well, we're going to renew it anyway. John, you mentioned the position that Kavanaugh took a couple of times. We've sort of glided over it, but I want to get to the propriety of that choice. You're, you're my go-to when it comes to Supreme Court justices outsmarting themselves. Um, <laughs> you've, you've been a Supreme which, Court clerk. Which is very easy for them to do. Well, okay. So if you're clerking for Justice Kavanaugh and he comes to you and says, look, pretty clear that this is an overreach from the CDC, but this policy is on an egg timer anyway. So if we unravel it, the court's going to get blowback. Renters across the country are going to be thrown into chaos. So I'm going to say, okay, you really shouldn't have done that, but wind it up and don't do it again. What would your reaction have been in chambers if he had told you in advance that that's how he wanted to handle it? I, I think what Justice Kavanaugh did made no sense from a judicial perspective or a legal perspective. You know, the court's there to decide the case or controversy before it. Is this moratorium order constitutional or not. There's a conflict between the Constitution on the one hand and what the Biden administration was doing on the other. And it's the job of the courts to de- to decide which side wins. And that's it. And, you know, what Justice Kavanaugh then went, I mean, what Kavanaugh did then was going beyond his judicial role and say, well, I'm going to uphold a law or here an order, which I think is unconstitutional. Because I just want to look at the practicalities of the executive branch having to carry this decision into effect. That was his mistake. And by playing politics, then he's gotten his just desserts. Was that the Biden administration said, you know, thanks for that. And we're going to do it again to you. Look, I have a slightly different reaction. Uh, first point is, I think it's very dangerous for anybody to go off and do this alone. So if it's Kavanaugh sitting in the middle, um, it seems to me that it's much riskier than if all five justices on that side had done it. Uh, but going back to sort of traditional principles of equity, uh, it is very common when you're dealing with ordinary injunctions in the private case to say you really have to clean this particular mess up, but you have 90 days in which you can do it. And it's that particular principle of equitable discretion that is done. What happens is it is a very serious offense. If somebody takes advantage of the 90 days in a private suit, instead of completing the stuff up, they add even more filth to the operation. And that would generally have serious contempt situations. They get thrown in jail. And, you know, as far as I can see, there's a serious question as to whether or not when there is a willful and open disregard of an order, that is the discretion is on how you tamp down, not how you start out, is that, in fact, a kind of high crime and disdemeanor, which is going to start to raise, guess what, the kind of impeachment issues that were done under the Trump cases. And this is a case in which it's quite clear that he made no bounds about what he was doing. You haven't caught me, and until you catch me, I'm going to continue to violate the law. Uh, Kavanaugh should be as angry as everybody else, but this then becomes kind of nine-nothing in the sort of ordinary constitutional discourse, but we don't have that today. And so the question is going to be, I think, even more generally, uh, the scope of the Biden executive orders have been far greater than anything that's ever been done by anybody. 
Um, and the question is, can he continue to get away with this? So can he suspend tax payments? And one of these things is you started to ask. Can he forgive student debt unilaterally? I mean, John, you and I have had this discussion many times that if you give somebody a discretion to modify debts, it doesn't mean that you could simply nullify an entire class of debt. It means that what you have to do is to look at it on a kind of case-by-case basis and find individual hardships because of Hobart allowing you to get a suspension, as opposed to saying, we think this is a bad idea to have these people do this. Uh, we're just going to dump $20 billion of debt onto the federal treasury. I think they're getting very close to the, the sort of the abuse of this particular power. And, and so, I mean, am I wrong? Is the talk of impeachment just a, a political distaste of Mr. Biden? Or is it in fact something which has a, a little bit more substance to it? So, John, you're my fellow expert on impeachment. I know you've tried to impeach me many times for my Roman knowledge. But I'm just curious as to not successfully I'm still coming back at you but I'm just curious as to how you think about it Troy you can answer too somebody I'll I'll leave it to the expert go ahead John I think this is a just another species of uh, you know the decline that was started by President Obama refusing to enforce the immigration laws I think you go from uh, DACA which where President Obama said, I'm just not going to enforce the immigration laws, not to case by case, not on a case by case basis by saying, look at this factor, balance against that factor, but just saying class of millions upon millions of people are just going to be immune from the immigration laws. And then the Supreme Court somehow upholding that when President Trump, I think, correctly said, no, we're going to go back to regular prosecutorial discretion. Well, this is another example where the executive branch can say, okay, if you if the Supreme Court means what it says, then why can't we refuse to enforce a law to other large sector, you know, large classes of cases? You might remember that when that DACA case came out, I said, well, if the Supreme Court's to be taken seriously, why couldn't President Trump just refuse to collect tax income taxes beyond 20%? And Biden here could say, well, if the Supreme Court means what it said in the DACA case, why can't I just say, well, you may owe student loans, but I'm not going to devote any federal resources to collecting the federal loans. And why does it have to be federal loans? Why not make it mortgages too while we're at it and other forms of federal debt? You could go on and on. That's all. I mean, there's no stopping point, it seems to you, once you say the president the president can just refuse to enforce a law as to whole categories of cases. One related topic I wanted to get you guys to before we leave this. With COVID, there are a whole range of proposals being entertained more seriously now because of the spread of the Delta variant. You've got the federal government, in addition to state and local governments, starting to impose vaccine mandates on their employees, some private companies doing the same. And you're seeing calls for it to shift to the consumer side, for airlines to start requiring passengers to be vaccinated, for bars and restaurants to to do the same, to think seriously about vaccine passports. And you've got people you know, on one side, of course, saying, well, it should just be a national mandate. Uh, Richard, what are the legal parameters here, both on the private and the public side? Who can or can't mandate you to get a vaccine? Well, I mean, this is becoming a very difficult question, uh, to put it mildly. There was recently a very strong opinion by, uh, emphatic, I don't think correct, by uh, uh, Judge Frank Easterbrook in the Seventh Circuit uh, when he was faced with the question of whether somebody who uh, said, um, I, look, I don't want to be vaccinated when I have to go back to school at some Indiana university was told point blank, you don't like it there, you could go somewhere else. Uh, this is a police power case. It's been settled by Jacobson uh, versus Massachusetts from 19- 
1905, you lose. And it was kind of contemptuous. Uh, there were a bunch of things about the opinion that were clearly wrong, it seems to me. The first widely unnoted fact about Jacobson, it did talk about the power of the state to deal with um, a smallpox vaccine, a serious matter. But the only punishment involved in that case was a $5 fine. And the other thing is there is a peculiar confusion about the state of play with respect to the vaccine. Uh, First of all, I mean, there are two classes of unvaccinated individuals. One class are those people who have acquired natural immunities from being exposed to COVID. And you could get those natural immunities, even if it turns out that you're asymptomatic. And you could measure for those particular things by taking some kind of an antigen test to see exactly how active this situation is. And then there are people who are unvaccinated but have no natural immunities. When somebody says that the only people who get the disease are those who are unvaccinated, false to be sure, but they don't distinguish between the two classes. And it may well be that the rate of vaccination by those people who are unvaccinated um, rather uh, with the natural immunities could be zero as well and so they're coming forward like Todd Zawicki at GMU being represented by the new Civil Liberties Alliance saying look I've had a serious stuff of COVID I am really very highly tanked up with all the necessary stuff why are you making me do the various masking and testing stuff under these circumstances when it impairs my effectiveness as a teacher and there's no additional case to anybody else and there may well be additional risk to you these vaccines are not risk-free there have already been some cases of adverse events that have been reported and there is a long tail problem which is very very serious in the sense that these vaccines have only been tested over very short periods of time and we don't know exactly what their long-term consequences are going to be there are also some recent studies out of israel which say that the natural immunities are more effective than the vaccine immunities and so why don't you want to do that with private institutions, I mean, I think it would be a kind of a contract case, uh, but it's also one of the things that you always worry about. They're doing this in part because they're pressured by the government, so you then have the state action problem with insinuated behavior, and whether or not these conditions, if they are kind of quasi-public institutions, unfair because they basically don't have any rationale associated with the disease. Um, what I am so terrified by is the utter kind of dictatorial way in which these things are resolved by the public parties and even by universities. I have yet to see any university, including the ones that I'm associated with, saying, look, what we are going to do now is to have a serious public discussion in which people on both sides of this issue can participate to figure out what our masking policy and what our vaccine policy ought to be. Nobody has ever started to say that. And I think the evidence is pretty strong that the masks are in general worthless. The uh, best line that I heard about them, uh, trying to stop a virus, tiny as it is with a mask, is like trying to keep out a swarm of bugs or gnats uh, by using a chain link fence. It simply doesn't work. And that you have to think otherwise. So I think these are very serious problems. But on the other hand, if you start looking at the case law, what I mentioned before is going to come back to haunt you. There is an extraordinary level of de- deference which is given with respect to the CDC. And that people on the other side are kind of ostracized and branded as being difficult. I would urge anybody, I did write a column on this, as did Todd Zawicki, uh, to read the affidavits of his both his private immunologist and Dr. Koldorf's and Bachelet, the uh, 
uh, Stanford guy on, on the way this situation works to see whether or not you think that these are cranks. They're not. Uh, they're very serious kinds of uh, situations that one has to deal with. And what's happened is we've become authoritarian because we refuse to have any collective disagreement or discussion with respect to the state of the science, with respect to vaccines, natural treatments, and everything else. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes in this entire situation is to assume that the asymptomatic transmission of the virus is a bad thing. It may be for 2% of super spreaders, but it may be a good thing with respect to 98% of the population. And the discussion of the pros and cons have never been systematically evaluated by any serious public body. It's only by kind of fringe people coming out talking uh, that you get something on this. This is a very bad state of affairs. I want to get you guys to do a couple of things that happened at the Supreme Court while we were away. Um, the first, because of its relevance going forward, is the the ruling that came out about voting rights in Arizona, particularly relevant given all the controversy over changes to election laws in the states. you got Democrats in Congress pushing their own election reforms, and you got the Justice Department pushing an investigation in Georgia over the electoral changes there. So this was one of the few big cases this term where you saw a sharp divide along the 6-3 partisan axis on the court with all the Republican justices agreeing that these electoral reforms they were asked to consider in Arizona were legitimate. And we should note, because this isn't done enough on these voting controversies, what the specific reforms were. There were two things at issue in this case, that Arizona changed the law to throw out ballots that were cast in the wrong precinct and to prohibit what's called ballot harvesting, which is when you have third parties collect completed ballots and, and turn them in for voters. So, John, the majority here, an opinion by Justice Alito, said Arizona was entirely within its rights to do that. By contrast, Justice Kagan, in her dissent, said, I'll read you the quote, what is tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. Who has the better part of that argument, and what are the implications for all the voting reforms being proposed throughout the country? I think Alito got this right. I think he had the better of the argument. And I'm disappointed, actually, in Justice Kagan's uh, dissent. There are various grounds to dissent, but you know, to wave the uh, flag of racism every time uh, the court doesn't adopt your reading of the Civil Rights Acts or the Voting Rights Acts, I think is... Um, you know, is, is not good uh, legal analysis. And like saying here, so th these two, in these two cases, there was no showing that the Arizona legislature was acting with any kind of racial animus or any kind of desire to tamp down on uh, voter turnout from minority communities. And one of the interesting facts, I think this is the most interesting fact that Justice Alito's opinion uh, brought forward was he, he asked um, how, what percentage of people actually vote in the wrong precincts, right? If they're really, if the Arizona legislature is really up to voter suppression of minorities, then you would expect to see they would try to target something that had an effect on minorities. And so he said, I think he believed he said something, showed something like the number of people who actually vote in the wrong precinct is below 1% for all voters. It's slightly below 1% for minority voters. And it's half of 1% for white voters. And he said to make, you know, to, to, to require that people vote in the right precinct, which is a long historical tradition in America voting, just has nothing to do with race. Now, the um, thing I didn't quite 
uh, care for in Justice Alito's opinion is that it's very hard to tell exactly what the court is going to uphold or strike down in the future in the Voting Rights Act in terms of how you vote. So as you said, Troy, a lot of the action with the Voting Rights Act at the court has been over things like drawing congressional districts or in the famous Shelby, you know, famous or notorious Shelby County case, whether states in the Old South are forbidden from changing any of their electoral rules unless the Supreme Court of the Justice Department approve. Now we're getting on to a new generation of these kinds of lawsuits, which is um, how do you show any change in an electoral procedure? You know, how you take, you know, how you run the ballot. Do you have to have mail-in ballots for options for everybody or not? And so on. Do those vote, does those violate the Voting Rights Act of 65 or even the 15th Amendment to the Constitution? The problem with the court's opinion is that it, get, I, I hate these things. It, it create, it, it sets forth, I think, a five-factor balancing test to figure out whether something violates the Voting Rights Act. I hate these because when you have five factors, you've got no factors. You can't tell in advance if you're a state legislature what new rule you've passed is going to violate the court's test. And so everything is going to get litigated. Every change in electoral rules is going to get litigated now, which is, that's unfortunate. I wish the court had gone a little farther and established some clear, bright line rules about what's allowed. I always wish for that. Look, I agree <laughs> with with John under this particular kind of situation. I mean, I start with a very simple-minded situation, which is that an identification card, a state ID of one form or another, is necessary for you to get on every airline inside the United States. Uh, everybody understands that you don't have to be able to drive to get a quote-unquote driver's license. You can get some other uh, documents will do exactly the same thing for you. Um, and it's not onerous for all sorts of other activities, why this then becomes something which we regard as a kind of a disparate impact threshold test and then decide that, well, it turns out that 99% of white people satisfy this test and 98 percent of black people do it so instead of saying there's a one percent difference what we do is say there's a twofold difference looking at the difference between one and two percent i think that is, is particularly a mistake uh, with respect to the two situations here the moment i start thinking about har- ballast harvesting i think that intermediates in control of these things break the chain of custody and they could remove some of the ballots that they don't like they could add others in which have perhaps been fake in one form or another and so i think that's extremely extremely important that one uh, make very, very certain that the only people who hold these ballots, um, once they leave the hand of a given individual who cast them, are those people who have some kind of responsibility under the law and whose behavior can be tracked. Uh, there are a lot of complaints that were made about this in the last election. It's not as though that they were all refuted. The Trump people may have been wrong on particular cases, but many of the cases they lost were on standing grounds and so forth. And I think that this this issue, uh, wholly apart from the validation of his particular election, is one that we really are able to do. And I think, in effect, this is a fairly important kind of reform. I also think that it would be a mistake to say that whatever liberalization you made on casting ballots during the COVID period has necessarily to carry over somewhere else. And I also think it's a really bad kind of thing to single out a state like Georgia, for example, to uh, say that it's Jim Crow 2.0, and when in many cases 
places, it has voting rules that are more relaxed than those in Connecticut or New York or some other northeastern state. And so it turns out that what we do is we don't even have a consistent standard that we apply to all these particular uh, kinds of situations. Um, and I think that, you know, generally speaking, when people like Justice Kagan pull the race card out in a situation like this, um, it basically is to distort the overall process. I'm old enough to remember what it was like in the 1950s when Jim Crow was in place. And to say that this is Jim Crow 2.0 is to exaggerate the so-called shortfalls of the current statutes, and it's to minimize in a disgraceful fashion the really ugly behavior that went on at, a, at an earlier time. And it's just too much of this kind of talk is a very, very dangerous thing. And I'm very disappointed that Justice Kagan went to the mountains so quickly on a case that seems to be so weak. The one other case that we should talk about is the one that's coming up next session. This is the challenge to Roe v. Wade coming out of Mississippi. And the Mississippi law that is precipitating this would ban abortion after 15 weeks. And the existing standard, of course, is that the states can't prohibit it any earlier than once you get to fetal viability. And Mississippi's attorney general makes an argument that will be familiar to listeners of this show. This is what she said. The Constitution does not protect a right to abortion. The Constitution's text says nothing about abortion. Nothing in the Constitution's structure implies a right to abortion or prohibits states from restricting it. Okay, now, John, maybe this is just muscle memory from Justice Kennedy's tenure, but the specific question the court agreed to adjudicate when taking this case was whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Is there anything about the way that is formulated that makes you think there could be an out here, that they're not going to charge at this issue head on? Or is this likely in your mind to really be the battle royale? I don't think this is going to be the case that overturns Roe or uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the case from 92 that was what really gave Roe a uh, new lease on life. And, and the reason why is because there is a, as, as you said, Troy, there is a uh, easy out, which I think is going to appeal to Chief Justice Roberts for sure. And what looks like it's going to appeal to Brett Kavanaugh, who's been sort of following the chief along in this desire to avoid politically sensitive outcomes. And that's, you could, as the court say, we're not going to strike down Roe. We're not going to invalidate the right of a woman to have, uh, to right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy, but we are going to allow reasonable state regulations. And in the course of that, they could say, Reasonable doesn't mean uh, specific, you know, weeks in the pregnancy. You know, this the trimester framework that was used by Roe uh, just doesn't have any bearing in the Constitution, and that's actually quite true to what Casey said and to what Chief Justice Roberts upheld in a Louisiana case, a few in the Louisiana and Texas cases uh, last year and a few years before that, which is the court could easily just say, look. Um, the test from Casey is there an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion uh, that just doesn't map on to the trimester framework. And so we can toss out the idea that just anything the state tries to do in terms of regulating pregnancy within the first 12 weeks is automatically unconstitutional. And if you do that, you haven't thrown out Roe and Casey. You've still allowed a woman the right to choose. You've just put your thumb on the scale of the state's ability to regulate and you put off for another day whether you're going to overturn the 
uh, you know, the mother of all precedents in our politics. Um, I think John is basically right on the short-term dynamics of this case. Uh, but it's also, I think, something that you have to think about from a slightly different perspective. Uh, when Roe came out, it was very clear to me, having written about the case in 1973, oh so long ago, and that this was all made up from top to bottom. Uh, if you start looking at a constitution and the due process clause, and you start thinking about health and health and safety as being a legitimate power, as we've talked about in the COVID cases and so forth, then it would be, I think, a sufficient power to protect the uh, life of an unborn fetus, whether or not you wish to denominate that fetus as a person or not person. If you go back and you start thinking about how these health powers are viewed with a certain degree of powerful discretion in the state, uh, that would make it further. If you then look at the historical pattern, in which every state, either at common law or by statute, had some statute that was going to be upset and struck down by a Roe v. Wade, um, it becomes clear that it's an enormous overturn. This is not like the situation that they had in Griswold and Connecticut, where it turned out on the contraceptive front, uh, Connecticut was a lone holdout about the question of whether or not you could have sales of contraceptives. Uh, and it's one thing to bring the 50th state into line. It's another thing to turn everything over uh, for all 50 state. So uh, Griswold disappears without a trace because nobody wants to challenge it on moral grounds. Whereas Roe, uh, the people who are against it basically are saying, you know, this is a form of homicide. It may not be ordinary murder. There may be differences between abortions, justifications that allow that don't uh, uh, get full respect here. Rape uh, on the condition of the fetus and all the rest of this stuff. Okay, we've got all of that, but you can't make it stick. And so if you're going to go back to the kind of originalist framework, it seems to me you have to strike this thing down. But, and this is the very big but, uh, it's been now since 1973, over 48 years that this thing has been on the books. And what you do is you see a deeply divided public, uh, basically in the following way. Two-thirds of the people in the United States really do believe that abortion raises serious moral problems, and two-thirds of the population believe that Roe is rightly decided. Uh, So it turns out that you don't have any real congruence between the moral and the legal shape of the way in which these particular arguments work. And so you then have to do something about long-term precedents, well-established. Do you want to overturn them? That's what they did in Roe, and it got them into real trouble. Do we want to do it again? And here's one argument that I make, which may tip the balance in favor of leaving it. When I was writing about this some time ago, it turns out there's a new New York statute that I found which said, we will pass right now a statute which says, in the event that Roe is overturned, we hereby as the state legislature of New York adopt Roe and its progeny as the law of this state. So in other words, what you're doing is you have a legislative legitimation, sort of the kind of thing that we talked about with the COVID stuff, uh, by the state legislature. Other legislatures can do this. And so it seems to me it's actually easier to overturn a decision if it turns out that there's going to be a political response in the legislative arena. Uh, And so my guess is that, strangely enough, this fear 
may well lead people to turn this thing back again. And I mean, I've taken both sides of this question in my own mind. I think it's extremely close sort of question. But I have no doubt that no matter which way this does come out, there will be enough sentiment for the legalization of abortion to carry the day in many jurisdictions. And it also turns out that the continued moral disapproval of of abortions will, I think, at the margin deter many women who are considering having one of these um, to think twice before they do it. All right, guys. Uh, Tech doesn't seem like an issue that we can ever get away from for very long these days. And there have been a couple of developments in that area recently since our last show that are worth talking about. I want to start with this one. There was a massive antitrust effort against Facebook. And, And by massive, I mean that this was the Federal Trade Commission combined with the attorneys general of about 40 states. This was predicated mostly on Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and and WhatsApp. And it did not go well for these plaintiffs in court. The federal judge here, Jeb Boesberg, who's an Obama appointee, was pretty brutal in his smackdown of this case. Basically said, you guys waited forever to file. These acquisitions happened years ago. But more to the substance, he said, in essence, nobody has presented me with any coherent rationale for why I should think of Facebook as a monopolist. A monopolist of what? And Richard, you've been wrestling a lot with this issue of late, but th- this is an issue that you have raised before, that it's really difficult to make these tech giants fit into the conventional antitrust framework. H- how sympathetic does that make you to the ruling here? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what you're trying to do. And in this particular case, they're trying to unscramble an egg that has been thoroughly scrambled on the theory that these things should have never taken place before. They were all subject to review under the Hart Scott Rodino statute, which deals with mergers. Um, there's a huge reliance interest that starts to take place. Um, there are a bunch of what ifs as to what's going on. If you had left Instagram or WhatsApp out there alone, they may never have gotten sufficient funding and they both would have died on the vine. Or it may well have been that Facebook would have acquired another company and it would have put enough money into it so as to make it the uh, same kind of demon we have there. And so I think that our good friend Bozberg, who's generally a well-regarded judge, did the right thing to say, this is just absolutely crazy. Uh, There is going to be an effort through Amy Klobuchar to try and change the merger law prospectively um, so as to ease the burdens, particularly with respect to what they call nascent competition. It may pass. I hope it does not. I think uh, the current standards are about right. Uh, But that's not going to be, I think, applied retroactively to earlier situations. The cases that I'm talking about are very, very different. It's where Facebook, um, and sometimes alone and sometimes with others, decides that they're going to keep certain kinds of content off of their particular site because they regard it as having misinformation. And they've tried to claim immunity, saying that they're just a common carrier, but they're doing a lot of editorial function. They're trying to claim that they're just private parties, but A, they're maybe be collusion amongst them that you could discover and B, they may be working closely with the United States government on this which raises at least in principle a state action question uh, but a remedy which tries to break up these companies is very different from a remedy which says you can't kick people off because you don't like what they're saying under the guise of misinformation and I think it's extremely important when you start looking at these things uh, to not have this kind of monolithic view that whatever these companies do is going to be perfectly legal 
legal or perfectly illegal, it actually helps to figure out what kind of practices are being challenged and exactly what kinds of justifications are going to be put forward uh, for the limitations in question. Uh, so, I mean, when I start hearing about them trying to break up Amazon, uh, Lena Khan and her, I think, somewhat delirious moments on the grounds that it delivers reliable service at low prices, which prices out um, certain kinds of small businesses, I say, I don't want to hear anything whatsoever about that. Uh, but when I start hearing them selectively remove people from their sites on the grounds that their books contain disinformation, I think it's a very different problem and that you have to think much more carefully about a limited remedy which takes from them either the immunity from tort liability on the one hand or actually orders them to restore these kinds of things uh, because the kinds of tests that they use for misinformation and illegality are much too broad and cover all sorts of things that I would regard as legitimate sources of debate. I would say half of the things that I say on this show would be misinformation in accordance to what the various learned people at Amazon and so forth think. So looking at this crazy. <laughs> then you want to ask them, what about Amazon and labor disputes? All power to them as far as I'm concerned. Amazon and Seattle taxation, all power to them. You just can't have uh, faithful friends, constant allies, which is the way in which too many of the tech critics work. And so I think Bozberg was right on that, but I think on the free speech issues um, we have to really think about whether or not Amazon and Facebook and Twitter should be able to have their way. You think 50% of your content would be labeled misinformation. I've never known you to be so optimistic, Richard. Well, I, I, yes, uh, there, there is that stuff. I mean, <laughs> I, when I think back to the reviews of my takings books and so forth, yes, I mean, uh, Armageddon was On Amazon? Those were all written by John. The nasty ones were all written by John. No, John, no. <laughs> yeah, there was no John, Amazon this, back then. This is Troy, 1985. you have no this idea is, how old that book is. <laughs> it's 1985. It's just timeless. But back John, then, no, back no. then, I wrote letters to the editor to the complaint to complain about the reviews well no i mean some of them were pretty harsh i have to say the book has done better than the critics <laughs> john uh let me get you to that the distinction that richard made about about content because also since we've been gone former president trump filed a class action lawsuit targeting facebook twitter and youtube it's an interesting argument trump's allegation is that the content restrictions on these platforms, the censorship, as it's called in the suit, amounts to a First Amendment violation, which is thorny, as Law Talk listeners know, because the First Amendment applies to government restrictions on free speech, not private parties. But Trump's argument is that because the tech companies are, in his telling, doing this under political pressure from Democrats, it amounts to government suppression. And further, because the framework for their moderation is the infamous Section 230, the, the part of the law that's controlling here. And because Section 230 came out of Congress, that is de facto the tech companies acting as an arm of the government. What, what do you make of that argument, John? It's clever and creative, but I don't think it flies. Uh, let me explain why. So as you were saying, the big problem here is state action, right? Private actors are allowed to censor whoever they like. There's no doubt that the big tech companies are censoring based on viewpoint and based on the content of speech, and they're censoring in a way that a government could not. But as you say, the First Amendment doesn't apply to you. Doesn't apply to me. It only applies to the government. If Troy shows up on my front yard with a sign, I can shoot him. Well, I can't shoot him, but well, maybe I could shoot him. But I can at least kick him off and say, you know, I don't agree with your speech. I don't have to support it on my property. So 
that's the big problem for Trump. How is Facebook? How is how is YouTube? How is Twitter uh, part of the government? So this claim that by giving Section Two Thirty immunity to uh, you know the content providers on the internet constitutes state action, I think that fails uh, because. Think about how broad that would be. There are other kinds of immunities that Congress has given out. And we don't think of that immunity itself making those people part of the federal government. The biggest immunity I could think of is there's an enormous immunity that's been created for state government officials, for police officers. Right? There's what's what's called qualified immunity, right? If you if a police officer uh, shoots a suspect they have a certain qualified immunity from lawsuit. That doesn't make every police officer in the country an arm of the federal government. Um, there are other immunities like that. There's immunities for defense contractors. I think there's immunities for vaccine makers. So there's all kinds of immunities in the law. This does not give you. Uh, this does not make you uh, suddenly bound by the free speech clause. Then the second argument is kind of interesting. I just don't see the proof of it. So when you look at the complaint, you know, I actually went when the complaint was filed, I was curious. Uh, the Trump lawyers claim uh, they quote uh, t- points where Democratic members of Congress or I think even Democratic uh, administration officials before they became administration officials were demanding that Facebook, YouTube, you know, big tech engage in more censorship. All right, this is sort of their uh, effort to say, uh, you know, Facebook at all are encouraging extremism and after or even before January 6th. But because of Trump, you have to stop this misinformation, clamp down on them. But as far as I can tell, there's no orders going out from the federal government commanding that these companies do that. These are just people in Congress, you know, giving speeches on the floor, asking questions at hearings. Who actually takes them seriously? <laughs> well, if you're a court, who actually is going to say, oh, I've been compelled because, uh, you know, Maxine Waters said nasty things about us on the floor of Congress. I don't think that just showing that people in Congress say things wishing a company would do something and then the company does it means that they're all of a sudden an arm of the government and sufficient to be covered by the Bill of Rights. Uh, John, I think um, I agree with you on the first point, uh, uh, a little more doubtful on the second. Uh, With respect to Section 230, it seems to me that it is very clear that to provide somebody with an immunity, if you've done it validly, is not the same thing as to act with them in coordinated fashion. We give all sorts of immunities for all sorts of reasons. It doesn't make it state action. Uh, On the other hand, if you actually look at Section um, uh, 2.30, when they start saying that these various kinds of decisions have to be made in good faith, it could well be that you lose on the immunity question not because you're unconstitutional, but because it turns out they're not acting in good faith when they have a viewpoint discrimination with respect to stuff, and so they put their hands on the scales one way or another. Favoritism in a private law context is in fact a sign of bad faith. So if you're a trustee, the standard Roman and common law principle, I get it in a 
again is that you can't decide that you're going to give more money to one of your beneficiaries because you like their politics than you can to another unless the trust specifically authorizes that kind of behavior. On the state action question, I think it's actually much closer. It's not that I'm worried about what Maxime Walters says on the floor of Congress or indeed anybody, uh, but the, the suppose it turns out that what happens is that people from the executive branch come forward and they say, you know what, we think it would be very nice that you do these kinds of things. Um, and if you don't do them, there's a kind of a what if, what else might happen to you or all about that sort. Well, under those circumstances, you know, there are a bunch of cases out there with wholly private decisions made by individuals working on government premises back in the early civil rights days, a case called Burton against Wilmington Parking Authority, where a restaurant which could have decided to let people in or out on the grounds of race if they weren't on public premises, it was held to be state action because the government could have done something to stop it. So the word they used was, did the government insinuate itself into the private affairs and by virtue of the leasehold arrangement the answer kind of dicey but nonetheless very fashionable at the time was yes well in these cases you don't have ownership of particular property but you may have insinuation in other ways and so i think the correct way to handle this legally is to say we don't know enough of what's going on but think of it in this sense um can you get a basically a summary judgment or a motion to dismiss without discovery under these cases? Or does Trump have enough points so they could start taking a bit of discovery with respect to every conversation that has taken place uh, between key Facebook officials and key government officials about what's going on there? And suppose it turns out you get some encouragement of the sort saying, you know, we think it's really very important for the political situation that you stop those people who are speaking against the COVID vaccination drive that we're putting in the place and it'd be nice for you to call some of that stuff disinformation um it doesn't have to be in order i think for this thing to raise um constitutional questions i think it could be just simply a cooperation type situation where the two parties act in concert uh the law on this is not all that clear i think um but i don't think what you do is you get a clean sweep of the board and simply by giving the examples that people who speak on the floor of Congress are not the kinds of people who have the influence we're talking about. Executive officials who have the power to act unilaterally are a very different class of people. The last thing that I'll ask you guys, totally different topic. The New York Times is running a symposium right now where they are asking various scholars and thinkers to propose the one amendment they'd like to see added to the Constitution. It's the time, so most of them are insane, but they did bring in a couple of token conservatives. But I put the question to you as we ramp up. You get one amendment to the Constitution on your terms. This doesn't have to make it through the process. It can spring fully formed from your brow. What's it going to be? I'll make it a jump ball, whoever wants it first. Well, I'll take it first. Um, First, I would like to ask you a question. You said that some of these things are insane. Um, What are that the Supreme Court should have 90 members or that we abolish the Bill of Rights? I don't know what it is, but I tell you, my view for this is I only want to make an amendment that I think is not going to be subject to erosion over time by judicial interpretation. So I don't want to mess around with the Commerce Clause or the Takings Clause as much as I disagree with the jury 
jurisprudence there because I think that all that stuff can be undone. But I do think as a neutral matter, having term limits of a Supreme Court justices, I would choose 80 years would be fine. And I would do the same thing for Congress. I don't want really short ones. I thought the movement way back with Thornton and so forth, of you know, two in the Senate and three in the House was nuts. But if it were four in the Senate on the one hand and 10 in the House on the other, I'm in favor of putting those things in place because I don't see how it is they could erode in quite the same fashion and it leads to a healthier form of rotation in office it changes the strategy for example in the supreme court as to whom you appoint if you know you've got 18 years you don't have to go after somebody who's 36 or 42 you could take somebody who's a little bit older um it also means that you don't have these protracted battles in the way you would have done before so i would pick that as my amendment rather than trying to do something else now john may want to amend the electoral college but i'm not going to talk about that you know, I, I, so I actually did a symposium like this about 20 years ago, and uh, with, it was all law professors. So, and my memory is that the one thing that most of the professors wanted to get rid of was the Senate. <laughs> just kind of interesting because they said oh, the Senate God. doesn't represent anybody. You know, why should states be represented in the legislature? And why is so much power concentrated in the Senate? And so on. I think that's, you know, that's kind of interesting, reasonable argument. I think that it's not clear. Uh, you know, the Senate, of course, is there only because of a compromise. You needed to have the, the little states sign off on the Constitution. I always thought that's a reasonable argument that you could still have federalism. And in fact, it might require the other branches to care about federalism more because right now there's this kind of idea that the Senate is kind of the crutch for federalism. And I don't think it really is as much as it used to be. But I could see... You know, if you could amend the Constitution now and you don't need, you know, you can undo the Great Compromise. It's not clear to me that um, every state should have two, you know, equal representation in the Senate and then the Senate having the power to block all legislation in the country and treaties and appointments and, you know, and constitutional amendments. This is very surprising to me, John. What, John? Do you want to? You you can't even do that. Um, this that's the one unamendable provision, right? Well, we'd have to get rid of that unamendable so amendment not, provision I mean, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not sure. Sounds, it's interesting. Democratic question: Whether you're allowed to do that? Well, yeah, I was just trying to think outside the box. It's like. Yeah, but I, I think you're on the wrong box. I mean, <laughs> uh, look, I mean, remember the difference between Democratic and Republican. And I think it was important in 1787, and it's largely forgot. Democrats basically want everything to go by popular majorities, which will allow for very powerful swing. If you start having these kind of entrenched situations, it changes the pace over which legislation takes place over time. And the entrenchment in the Senate, in many cases, I think does act as a break. Um, and that in many cases that turns out to be extremely important if you start looking at the kind of stuff that has passed the house of representatives under this administration and then realize that it's all bottled up in the senate with 50 50 i think it shows you that uh, you don't want to think of the popular majority as the ultimate test you want to ask yourself whether or not more complicated arrangements will start to lead to things that are more conversant with the constitutional situation and in my view that means the kind of classical liberal small government values that I think were championed at the time. If you're a progressive, you want to run these changes. I'm not a progressive, and I don't want to run them. Oh, yeah, I, I would right. prefer to leave the thing alone, but... Good job. It seems but what about that, the judges? <laughs> no, the only, the only thing is that it seems to me that the problem is not 
anymore, Congress passing too much legislation, which is what the founders were worried about. It, the problem is the administrative state. And so you actually need Congress to be more active to overrule, to you know, trim back, to stop, you know, undo the delegations of the past. Sometimes I wonder whether, you know, blocking up the legislative process doesn't make sense when you have a hyperactive welfare state in existence, which can't be stopped by Congress because it's so hard to pass legislation now. All right, fellas, we're going to leave it here. Thanks, as always, to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.